Through innovation, academic excellence, and family-centered clinical care, Children's Mercy Kansas City is transforming outcomes for children around the world. Welcome to the audio interview series, Transformational Pediatrics, with host Dr. Michael Smith. So our topic today is Management and Treatment for Poots-Jakert Syndrome, or PJS. My guests are Dr. Thomas Attard and Caitlin Lawson. Dr. Attard is the Medical Director for the Endoscopy Services at Children's Mercy Kansas City, and Caitlin is a Certified Genetic Counselor. She's been involved with the Hereditary Polyposis Program at Children's Mercy Hospital since 2012. Dr. Attard and Caitlin, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting us. So why don't we um, start with you, Dr. Atardin. How about just a nice review of PJS? Thanks. So um, thanks for doing this, Mike. Um, so PJS is one of the, um, uh, one of the several um, uh, what we call hereditary polyposis syndromes that we deal with um, in children. Um, it's basically a, an inherited tendency to develop polyps actually throughout the gastrointestinal tract, but even sometimes in the airway or in, the, in, the, um, in other areas of the body. Um, in, the, in the intestinal tract, it carries some significance because those polyps, especially when happening in kids, um, will entail a risk of actually growing to an extent of, ob- of obstructing the gastrointestinal tract. So those kids, unless identified and treated appropriately, are at risk of having uh, obstruction and, and, and repeated surgery. Um, later on in life, um, the bigger problems are to um, watch out and screen for uh, malignancies. Um, it, it is hereditary, so people need help understanding the genetic cause and pattern of inheritance of it, and that's where we get uh, genetic counselors involved to help the families out with with understanding um, what the long-term and, and uh, implications towards uh, relatives and siblings are. Well, what a great lead-in to, to a question for Caitlin, then. Tell us about your role in helping patients with PJS. Sure, thanks. Um, So the genetic counselor in the polyposis clinic attends each of the initial clinic visits. And for patients who have suspicion or confirmed diagnosis of Pete Dager's syndrome, um, the genetic counselor's role is reviewing that syndrome and making sure that the family understands that, yes, you're in a GI clinic, so we're talking about the GI tract, but Pete Dager's syndrome encompasses... um, risks for uh, abnormal cell growth in other parts of the body. Um, so we review the um, kind of areas of the body that may be affected by pete Jager syndrome, but most importantly, we talk about genetic testing related to this condition. Um, pete Jager syndrome is caused by mutations in a single gene called STK11, and about 95% of patients who have pete Jagers will have a mutation found in that gene if we test the blood. Uh, once we find a mutation, I counsel the family about this confirms the diagnosis and who else in the family may also be at risk for acute Jager syndrome. How would we test for it? How long will results take? Will insurance cover it? Is there anything we should put in place before we have testing regarding insurance? Um, can we be discriminated against if we have a genetic diagnosis in terms of life insurance and health insurance? These are all questions that families ask all the time. Um, and a genetic counselor is specifically trained to help address those. So we think about um, an overview of the condition. We think about access to genetic testing, disseminating results amongst a family, and then discussing reproductive options and risks with patients who are um, in their later teenage years as well. Dr. Tard, we now have um, what is our first set 
of guidelines for for treating PJS. So tell us a little bit, because I know you were a, a contributor to this. Tell us a little bit about the process for developing these guidelines and how it really came to be. Right. So, um, so of course, PJS has been no, has been understood for for many decades now as as a syndrome, and there have been several adult-based um, management guidelines or position statements. Um, uh, guidelines have come from adult gastroenterology societies and, and genetics um, societies also. Um, what has been lacking has been a an actual effort um, looking at guidelines focused at the pediatric age range. And, and this, is, this is somewhat frustrating, of course, because, um, as we said earlier, although the adults you are looking more in terms of cancer risk and therefore cancer surveillance. In the younger child, cancer risk is not as big, it is a concern, but not as big as a concern as it is to watch the small intestine and, and watch out for obstruction. So, so questions like how early do you start testing? When do you do genetic testing? What kind of um, procedures do you do? And how often do you do them? And what actually is the aim of doing procedures? These were all previously unaddressed. So um, there are several pediatric gastroenterology societies in the world. They kind of are all unified in, in one one larger team, but the European Society was the one that actually took on the task of looking at um, the different syndromes, and of course, Pius Jaggers was going to be one of them, and come up with a process of finding a uh, certain consensus statements that would guide then the rest of the pediatric GI community in what their decision-making processes would be with regards to these patients. This was therefore a process that started back in 2012 um, for um, pediatric gastroenterologists, um, myself, who was back then in Europe, um, uh, Dr. Shlomi, who was in Israel, um, Warren Heyer, who was at St. Mark's, and Carol Derno from Canada, kind of got together and, and drove the core of this group looking at guidelines. And since then, of course, we've had several meetings, usually at the ASPIGAN level, um, and roped in the expertise of many other individuals. Um, every single polyposis group, um, Pius Jaggers being one of them, had at least 10, 10 co-authors. Um, and all of these individuals were people who are interested in polyposis. Um, and through a process of really of uh, asking single focused questions, looking at the evidence, um, discussing the evidence, and then coming up with with agreement or, um, or disagreement sometimes on what needs to be said to the general GI community, we then drove the creation of these, the, these guidelines or position papers, which are now submitted for publication. Yeah, so Dr. Attar, tell us then how Children's Mercy is now managing uh, the pediatric patient uh, with, with, say, PJS, in view of these new recommendations? Is it leading to true, you know, clinical imp- implementation of these guidelines? Yes, of course. The, the guidelines are, I think the guidelines have more than anything um, proven at least a, a validation of what we have done in most scenarios dealing with PJS. Um, To some extent, I don't really think we've changed a lot of our practice. Um, It has, but it has, however, made made what we do a bit more formally established, meaning we all knew that there was a risk, for example, of 
testicular cancer in the kids, and we all knew that you had to do regular, regular screening. But we had this ambiguity on, well, when exactly do you start? Um, well, now we know. Um, when can you start offering genetic testing? It's, it's always a debate. But now at least we have the support of a consensus statement that has the best evidence, sometimes not much evidence, but at least the best evidence that is out there giving us a rationale to do what we do. Specifically, however, in looking at the polyps in the small intestine, um, what, what the guidelines have helped us with is actually being able to state, look, what we're doing right now endoscopically may seem aggressive, and I, I agree, it totally is, but it is actually the best approach um, in terms of preventing uh, the, the, the significant morbidity um, of having repeated surgeries um, that comes after having untreated small intestinal polyps. Um, in, in essence, what we do when we look for polyps in the small intestine is we are aggressively pursuing um, uh, the presence of these polyps using capsule endoscopy. And then when we identify these polyps through capsule endoscopy, then we go after them with what's called double balloon enteroscopy, which allows us to remove polyps from the small intestine that we know, should we not do that, may result in, in obstruction, presentation to the emergency room, surgery, resection of the bowel, um, even to the extent where you have adults um, having what's called short bowel syndrome um, or intestinal failure, um, uh, should this go uncontrolled. So uh, in summary, I think it's provided a validation of a more aggressive approach towards the treatment of PJS patients, even in pediatrics. Caitlin, how are the guidelines going to affect what you do with genetic counseling? Yeah, so kind of spearing off of what Dr. Attard said, it's a lot of validation to practices that we may have already done, but now we have more evidence based to explain why or to explain when evaluation is necessary. Um, frequently, the patients who present to us who don't yet have a confirmed diagnosis may have some features of PJS, but maybe not a completely obvious um, clinical picture. So um, having a guideline to say, if you um, are a certain age and you have some characteristic signs um, in the absence of a family history or absence of proven PJS-type polyps, um, this is when genetic testing is indicated and this is when it's appropriate for a young child. In general, genetic testing in children um, is treated conservatively for good reasons, especially when we're talking about risks of cancer um, and knowing if they have a predisposition. So we don't like to do testing in patients who it's not warranted for. Um, but this helps us give clear guidelines as to how old is the patient in front of us, what features do they have, how suggestive is their history of Peutz-Jäger syndrome, and when genetic testing um, may help clarify the diagnosis. Um, this condition can be inherited in families, as Dr. Attard has alluded to. It's an autosomal dominant condition, but a significant portion of patients may represent the very first case in their family, so they may not have an affected parent. Um, so we have families who the history seems very obvious, genetic testing is clearly indicated, but we have very many patients who present to us who have some ambiguity either in their family history or their personal history. So having guidelines that help us establish what is accepted as standard of care as to when to do genetic evaluation is useful. Um, especially for the patients who have some um, ambiguity in their history. Um, and it also helps us understand uh, for the patients who 
asked to say when uh, my other relatives should be tested. So if we diagnose a patient in our clinic and they have some siblings at home who have not yet shown signs of PJS or not been evaluated for signs of PJS, it helps us give some validation to say, why don't we um, evaluate your 10-year-old sibling this way and why don't we evaluate your 2-year-old sibling this way? Um, So it's a lot of help for us to make things standard of care in this way with guidelines. Right. Very good. So it's formalized what you're doing. It validates what you're doing. So much needed. And, um, you know, Dr. Attard and Caitlin, the work that you're doing is amazing to me. I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for coming on the show today. You're listening to Transformational Pediatrics with Children's Mercy, Kansas City. For more information, you can go to childrensmercy.org. That's childrensmercy.org. I'm Dr. Mike Smith. Thanks for listening.